I want to pray, and uh, I'd like to ask um, my brother Awino to come up here, and uh, will you bring him a microphone? And I'm gonna, as I'm praying, is going to come. Father, I want to thank you so much for the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ that you've given us. And I want to thank you, Lord, that you are with us. And today, Lord, I ask that as we hear the word and as I, as I preach about your gospel, that it would go deep into our hearts. Lord, I bless this great nation. I bless this earth in Jesus' name. And I ask, God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done and let everyone know you as the great and wonderful and kind and forgiving Father that you are. And I ask in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing? I'm just so blessed to be here. So I'm going to read from the book of Genesis, chapter 15. God's covenant with Abraham. So please bear with me. Um, I'll be a little slow. Um, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O oh, sovereign Lord, what can you, what can you give? What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your, your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count all the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed in the Lord. Amen. Amen. And he credited it to, to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of your, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer and a goat. And a ram, each three, each three year old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all this to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the uh, carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and a dreadful darkness came over him. 
Then the Lord said to him, No, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great positions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Amen? Amen. In the fourth generation, your descendants will, will come back here for the sin of emirates has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant, a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. The U oh my gosh. Euphrates, amen. The land of Canaanites, Canaanites, Kedmonites, Hydatites, Perizzites, Rephrites. Oh, this is, this is rhyming. This is awesome. Amorites, Canaanites, Gigashites, and Jubasites. Amen. Amen. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you, Alino. No problem. Come on. How many of you guys are looking forward to the next time Owino preaches, huh? Come on. He's coming up on the, is it the 27th of next month, I believe? So he's got a fantastic word that uh, he shared with me, and I can't wait to have him share with you. Isn't the word of the Lord beautiful? Thank you, Jesus. Well, I want to talk to you today about covenant. I want to talk to you about covenant. This is a exciting journey and what I'm asking the Lord to help me to do is to not try to cover too much in the half hour that I have so Lord help me with that Genesis 12 1 through 3 is where the beginning of this covenant this promise from God is given to Abraham and, it, and I'm going to start right here now the Lord said to Abram go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It continues on, starting in Genesis 15. And he, and he says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, you have to realize this is years later. After that first promise, Abraham believed God in the previous, in, uh, just in the last chapter, but a lot's happened. Abraham has actually right here, he's just gotten back from delivering Lot and his possessions and, and most of Sodom's uh, kingdom. He's, he's already gone and rescued them. Things have happened, but he has not been able to have a child. And God appears to him and says, Abraham, don't fear. Don't be afraid. I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. And Abram says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me 
since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, you got to remember that in the previous scripture, he says this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram's doing the math and saying, well, how is everybody going to be blessed through my line, through me, when I don't have any kids? He's a pretty smart man. He's doing some basic math. And so he asked him, Lord, what will you give me since I'm childless? How can you possibly give me this promise? How will you make this happen? And he goes on and says, since you've given me no offspring, then someone born in my house is going to be my heir. In other words, a, a son of a, of a servant or a servant born in my house will be my heir, but they're not my actual heir. So what, how will you guarantee this to me? And this is where then the Lord, it says, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he takes him outside. He says, look towards the heavens. Look at the stars, Abraham. I love how God reaches to us right where we are, and he gives us something we can grab a hold of. He speaks to us in, in a language we can understand. I can imagine Abraham stepping outside of his tent and looking up at the stars, you know, just the ones he can see. And he's thinking, I just need one son, Lord. I just need one son. And God says, look at the stars. If you're able to number those. And in that moment, God is looking. Right now, there's seven billion people on the earth. Abraham's looking for one son. Now, two billion people, whether they're sleepy Christians or not, confess Christ on the earth right now. I doubt it even entered into Abraham's mind. There'd be two billion people living right now in this day confessing Jesus Christ because of a promise made to Abraham. Isn't that neat to think about? That doesn't even count all the ones that are already with God. They've already come and lived and passed. We're just talking about the seven billion here. Two billion of them already say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oops, I like this part. And then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as, as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur, etc. And then he says this, and this is where it gets interesting. Well, it's already interesting, but it gets real interesting. So he said to them, bring me a three-year-old goat I'm sorry, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, how many animals is that? It's five animals. I was holding up my hand. I was giving you a little hint. Um, it's five. What is, what is, how many of you guys know that, uh, that in the ancient, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew people, that numbers mean something? Okay? To God, numbers mean something. What does the number five stand for? grace. I just think that's fascinating. That's just for free, but I just think it's fascinating. He makes a covenant with him, and the covenant is made from five animals signifying grace. So then he brought all these to him and cut them in half and laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. So I want to talk to you about what did this mean? Because see, Abraham understood what this meant when God said, this is the guarantee. He just asked and said, God, how will you guarantee me? How can you tell me that this will happen? I don't even have a son. Will you, will you tell me why? It, I do believe you, but I'd like for you to show me some, some proof here of what you're doing. I believe what you're saying, but, but how will I know that what you're saying is, is going to happen? And so God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now the word covenant comes from karath berith. And, and karath means cut. It literally means cut. You ever cut a deal with somebody? Well, that's where you get that expression comes from. Let's cut a deal. It means let's cut a covenant. Let's make an alliance. And what you would do when you made a, a covenant 
in the ancient Near East. See, this wasn't, for us, we just, we just sort of look at this picture and we go, okay, <laughs> that's weird. God had you go get some animals and cut them in half. And then, why? Right? How many of you, I mean, how many of you just read this and you're just sort of like, I don't know, it's old, they did stuff like that in the day. You know, they did a lot of weird things in the Bible kind of thing. But this was very, very significant. In fact, this is so significant that if we can understand what's happening here and begin to understand this aspect of what God's doing, the gospel comes into a new light for us that, that actually it's hard to find context for what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. Why is it good news if we don't understand covenant and who God is in that covenant? Are you guys interested? So he cuts the animals in half. And so it's to cut, and then it's to make a covenant, an alliance, a pledge. And what you would do is you would cut an animal in half when you were going to make a covenant. Now, a covenant is like a contract. It's more than a contract, though. A covenant is more than a contract because a covenant is relational, it's personal, it's intimate, but it's also contractual. Now, a contract, if I made a contract with Sammy, um, me and Sammy, we're always doing things here together, have you noticed lately? And so I decide that I'm going to tell Sammy, I'm going to buy your car, Sammy, and, uh, and, and here's how much I'll pay for it, and if I don't pay for it, well, then you can have the car back. Well, that's a contract. There's some measure of relationship with it, but, but that's as far as it goes. We're, we're, we're dealing with one particular thing, and if I don't honor my end of the contract, well, then there's a, there's a result of that, but there's, and so there's a legal understanding, and she could bring that contract, and she could present it if I stopped paying on the car. She could present it to a judge, or present, and, and the judge would say, well, clearly you've written up this contract. You need to honor the agreements of the contract. You've stopped paying. Return the car. That makes sense, right? Okay, well, a covenant is like a contract in that it's a legally binding contract. It's, it's like that, but it's even deeper because a covenant contains in it blessings and curses. A covenant is more than just a contract, although it's as legally binding as a contract. Now, for us in this day and age, number one, I was, I was actually looking at a graph of the word use of covenant. I was looking it up, and they had this little graph of the word covenant, and, and since the 1800s, the graph goes like this, you know? It's like being used, and then it just, after about 1840, it just drops. We don't even use the word covenant anymore. How many of you have used the word covenant this week? How about last week, right? I mean, the only time I ever see covenant, really, is covenant trucking. You see the, the truck, you know what I'm talking about? It's just not a word that we, that we really think a lot about, which is rather ironic because we're people who read the Holy Bible, and Bible means book, holy book, and in this book, there are actually two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The word testament actually means covenant. It's Latin. Is it Latin? I might be lying to you. Steve Shear knows. For covenant. I might have the base language wrong there, but testament means covenant. Isn't this interesting? Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because the entire gospel is predicated on the covenant that God has made with man. The entire gospel is the good news of God and how he's relating to this covenant. How many of you knew this? A couple of you, good. 
So what happens in this covenant? He comes in, he cuts these animals, and here's, here's what this meant. You would cut the animals and you'd lay them, a half, lay, lay them half and half. And then you and the person that you're making this personal, intimate, relational, contractual, legally binding agreement with, here are the terms of this con- covenant. And God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless all nations through you and through your seed. And Abraham says, how do I know that you'll do this? And God says, I will make a covenant with you. Now, in the covenant, what you do is you lay these out, and then the two of you that are entering into that covenant, you walk between the animals. You walk through the blood, through the pieces of these animals, and you walk between together. Both of you walk through. And what you're saying is, I will do unto you as I have promised. And you will do unto me as you have promised. And if either of us breaks the the rules of this covenant, breaks the relational part of this covenant, if I step outside of what we just agreed to do, that I will be unto you as I've promised and you will be unto me as, as you've promised, if either of us breaks it, then be it unto me as it is with these animals that I will be cut in two, that I will be cut to pieces just like these animals. And I will shed my blood just like these animals. And that's what the covenant was. That's why you cut a deal. So you don't want to cut a deal with just anybody, do you? Because you're saying, I lay before us now life and death, and I'm going to walk through here. And if I fail to keep my side of this agreement with you, to remain with you relationally and contractually, are you with me here? This is an agreement, but it's even more than agreement. It's a contract in all the ways that contracts are contracts. But it's even bigger. And so God says, Abraham, let's do that. And Abraham's going, well, you're God. This is a good idea. So let's go a little further. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. What does this mean? This means it was daytime. Because when do birds of prey come down? They come down during the day. So he's waiting all day. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he's, he's basically saying, hey, Abraham, remember where he says earlier, will I not tell Abraham what I'm doing? Don't I tell my friends everything that I'm doing? Does that sound familiar to you? So he's just telling him, Abraham, this is, gonna, this is how this is going to work. Don't be worried that, when you, that you're going to die. I'm telling you, you're going to go to the grave in peace. But let me tell you about what's going to happen in the future because I'm going to keep my covenant with you. Here's the conditions of what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. This is what's going to happen. He's not even Abraham yet. He's Abram. He's waiting to become a ham. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. So he gives him the land. He also gives him the promise. He he ratifies the promise that he gave him in Genesis 14, is that all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Now, 
And then we go on and he talks about what the land, the, the layout of what the land will be that, that he will give to his people, which as of yet still hasn't happened. So it'll be interesting to see how God works that out. But that's not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about this covenant that all people will be blessed through Abraham. That here God made this covenant. Now, here's what's interesting. In a covenant, you both walk through the pieces. Abraham never walks through the pieces. What does that mean? It means, you see, when you walk through to make the covenant with the person, first of all, you want them to be just as much on the hook as you, right? I mean, how many of you know somebody who's married, are married, or plan to get married? That means all of you. Don't raise your hands, then that's you. You want to just jump into a marriage with someone where you're going to pledge, I will be unto you as I should, always. Even if you aren't. So I will make this commitment, and if I don't honor it, then let it be unto me as it is with these animals. Let me be cut to pieces, and, and, and let it be unto me just like it is with these animals. You enter into a covenant with that person, but then you don't require them to do anything. It's like, but hey, for you, like it's all good. If you like it, it's good, but if you don't, take off. It's no big deal. I mean, it's all good. Let's just live together for a little while, See how it feels, make sure we're compatible, right? Is that a covenant? No, that's not a covenant. There's zero commitment from someone else in that kind of a covenant. Are you guys tracking with me? So when you enter into a covenant relationship, you want to make sure that you are both coming into this with full love in your heart and full commitment in your heart that you're saying, I'm going to be unto you as I always should. And if I'm not, then may it be unto me like these animals. Let me be cut into pieces and let my blood run out just like these animals because I'm promising you my whole life. But I'm only doing that because you're doing the same thing. Because otherwise, why, what, what do they have to, you know, to benefit? They have all the blessing and none of the curses, right? How many of you would get into a marriage if, if your husband was like, or your wife was like, yes, I like, I like that. I like the idea that if you cross me or if you don't commit to love in this relationship, then you'll get punished. And so you have a, you know, that's a good idea. I like that. Let's, let's have you choosing life. However, I, I'm kind of a grace person. You know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a little more progressive, a little more evolved. And I don't like the idea of having to actually keep my end of the covenant. So I'm going to love you as best as I can, but you know, we all make mistakes. And if I do make a mistake, remember the thing about that you can't leave me or you'll be torn to pieces. Remember that part. Remember your promise. But I'm going to kind of, I'm going to chill. I'm going to chill. Um, but if you do things right, I'll probably stick around, probably. How many want to sign up for that covenant? How many of you got married and found out you did? Don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you know, here's the interesting thing. Our culture doesn't really understand covenant. You live in a culture right now that doesn't really understand covenant, which means we don't really understand reality. Because the reality of this kingdom and the reality of what God created has been and will continue to be based on covenant. And the covenant is with God. Now I have to, I have to put this thing to bed because I only have 11 minutes, but I'm gonna, I wanna build on this here in the next few weeks 
we're going to keep coming back to this. And in fact, we'll never get away from this because this is the whole foundation of how the gospel is actually the gospel. The original covenant was with Adam and Eve. He said, I give you everything. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. And he said, cultivate this earth. Take care of it. This is your job. He gave Adam a job. He gave him a place called Eden, which means pleasure. I have a whole sermon about that that I want to preach, but I'm being a good boy and I'm going to stay away from it right now. And he gives him a job and he gives Adam and Eve the job and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And, what, and he says, he gives, them, he gives them one condition so that they have freedom to choose or to not choose. And he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything's yours. You have total authority. You have total ability. You, you, here's your job. Here's how it works. Be with me. We have a relationship. They walked in the cool of the day. What happens? They eat from the, from the tree. They broke the covenant. And what happened when they broke the covenant? The curse came upon them and the earth. Death and sin entered the picture. And God immediately in Genesis says this. He says to the snake, you're cursed. You'll crawl on your belly. And there's going to be enmity between the woman and you which means bad news for the snake. And he says, her offspring will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. What's he talking about? I'm making a covenant with you that I'm gonna redeem this thing. I'm making a covenant with you, Adam and Eve. I'm gonna redeem this thing. And then we move forward and what happens? We have Noah. Noah is found righteous before God. God's looking for someone to continue to honor the covenant that he made with Adam and Eve. And he finds Noah. And he says, Noah, build an ark. I'm making a covenant with you. And Noah builds the ark. And what happens? He floods the earth. And when they come out, he makes a sacrifice. And he says, Noah, I make a covenant with you. Look, the rainbow. That's the sign of my covenant. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you, are you noticing a theme here? It's all in the old covenant. This is all about the old. It's about the covenant of God. This whole book is the covenant of God. It's the holy book of the covenant of God. And I think even what you're going to find too is there's one covenant. The new part of the covenant is the access that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. And I, I can't unpack all that today, but it's really good news. Isn't it good news to know that God doesn't just change his mind? I had one covenant, but I didn't really think it through, so I had to come up with a better one. I mean, do you want to follow that God? It's like, oh, carry the one <laughs> Jesus, you're going to have to die. I didn't really think of that. But we almost treat the old covenant and the new covenant that way. He used to be mad and weird and angry and unforgiving. Now he's really nice, hands out lollipops, and I can do whatever I want. It's like, what kind of God do you serve? He looks so much like you. I'm not sure. Let's get on track here. So God walks through this covenant himself and he doesn't require Abraham to walk through. What does this mean? What does this mean? This is extraordinary. This has never happened before. You'd almost say, God, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Now, wait a minute. What are you saying? And here's what he's saying. Abraham, I have promised to bless you, and I have promised that all nations will be blessed through you. I promised Adam and Eve 
that I would come and redeem them from the curse someday. And I promised Noah that I would be faithful. And now, Abraham, I'm promising you that I'm going to redeem all things through you. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. But Abraham, I, if I don't keep this promise, if I don't keep my promise, my word, to be faithful, to do these things, to redeem you through this covenant, to keep my promise to, to this covenant, then may it be unto me as these animals that I will be torn to pieces and may my blood pour out because I have not kept this covenant. But then he went further. He didn't have Abraham walk through. And so what he was saying further is, and Abraham, if you and your descendants fail to keep this covenant, if you don't follow these things, if you, if you don't continue in these things, then let me be torn to pieces and let my blood pour out so that I can keep this covenant. You see that? He just made this covenant unconditional on God's behalf. He just took the conditions and said, Abraham, if I, do the, if I don't do the right thing, then I'll die for it. But Abraham, if you or your descendants don't do the right thing, then I'll die for it. I will take the punishment. Did he lower the standards of the covenant? No, he did not. In fact, he goes on, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And who is born through that? Moses is then born. And what does God do? He codifies the covenant. He says, this is what my covenant of love looks like in real time. He says, listen, this is the righteous requirements of my covenant that I've made. And he lays it out for all of us. He shows us what love in action looks like. Things like don't steal, don't commit adultery, do not murder do not covet. If you strike a woman when she's pregnant and she loses the baby, I will require your life from you. Did you know that's in the, in, the, in, the, in the covenant? It's in the law. It has things like let your crops rest. It has things like wash your hands before you eat. Why? Because everything about God's covenant is for life and life abundantly. But there's a standard of his holiness and his righteousness based on who he actually is. But then he made this covenant with Abraham that said, if you fail to keep your end of the covenant, which I've now spelled out through the law, so now we have a fuller understanding of what it would be to be in covenant with God. Are you guys tracking with me here? And, and then we found out through the law what? That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came and he said, listen, this is the entire law. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If you'll do that, all of this gets fulfilled. We don't take a year and let crops rest anymore, but we do crop rotation now, don't we? Isn't that beautiful? What do you think God had letting the land rest? Why do you think it was in there? Because he knows what he made, and you've got to do crop rotation. You've got to let that land rest. We may not keep the seventh day as the Sabbath anymore, but have you ever heard a little thing called the weekend? Like, oh no, are we keeping the official, like, correct day of the Sabbath? Ha! Ah! What was the point? Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Why did I put it in the law? Because I'm telling you that I value rest and you need to rest. Are you guys, are you seeing the beauty of the law? You see, Jesus didn't come and say the law was bad and it was icky. And so I had to die to get that icky thing off of you. No, he came in and said, look, the law has shown to everyone here that every single one of you has failed to keep the covenant with me. But I made a covenant with Abraham. And I said in that covenant that if you don't keep the covenant, if Abraham and his descendants don't keep the covenant, then I, then I, I will be torn to pieces and my blood will be poured out to fulfill the righteous requirements of my covenant that I've made with you. Now some of us would say, well God, you're the creator of reality. And and I think a lot of us relate to God this way. We have this, well really we all have kind of our own little demigod syndrome. We want the right to define reality. We're like born to define, right? It's like I get to choose what reality is. And, And we have a tendency many times to try to tell God how he should have done it. And to choose how we're going to relate to him based on what we think is best, influenced by the culture we've been born in, influenced by what we think lately or maybe the latest book we read. And we want to reserve the right to tell God how reality should work. And so we cut ourselves breaks and we, we don't necessarily think things through. We haven't submitted to the reality that he's laid out. Are you guys with me? And so we come up with ideas that, that, that end up sounding a little bit like this. Well, if God has all the power and he created us to be able to make choices and he knew we were going to sin and he still loves us, then sin must not really be that big of a deal. Which is license. That's just relativism. That's just me deciding that based on my current behavior and based on my understanding of how things go and slapping it all together, then it just must not be that big of a deal. But God is completely good and righteous and holy, correct? So if I pull out a gun and I shoot all of our youth right here, I'm not going to. I really love them. And then I extrapolate this idea of, well, God's already forgiven sin, and Jesus died to pay for it anyway, so we should just forgive Josh, because he's going to go to heaven anyway. I mean, right? Jesus paid for it, didn't he? So what's really the big deal if, you know, he must have had a bad upbringing, and it's probably society shaped him, and he was having a rough day. And, and, you know, in the, in the end of it all, God's a God of grace, right? He forgives sin. So, so we should probably, like, get him rehabilitated or something. Why should I be punished? I was having a bad day. But no one in this room would say that's appropriate, right? No, none of, no one in this room would say, your life is more valuable than these two, four, six, eight, ten kids. Ten, I'm sorry, not kids, young adults right? Jesus paid for that. But in that moment, is that really equitable? Is God righteous if he just says, oh, Josh, don't worry about it. Jesus died for you. Is he really allowed to just lower the standard? Does that work in real time? Now, I'm using a very inflammatory and very sensational example here. 
But I'm only doing it because sometimes I feel like we have to shock ourselves into thinking things through. Because in other areas, we try to justify on the one hand as though God has somehow lowered the standard of what he's laid out in the law of his covenant. Like, oh, Jesus died so we don't have to meet any of those conditions. No, Jesus died so that you would meet even higher conditions. Jesus said, in the, in, he goes, in the law, you're said not to even, uh, not even to, I'm sorry, in the law, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Is that lower or higher? So in this new covenant that we've entered into, we're able to not only fulfill the law, but we actually go even further because we've been born again. Are you guys tracking with me? Now the gospel comes in and confronts our way of thinking. It comes in and it says, listen, you don't have license to sin now because of Jesus dying. He fulfilled this covenant. Let me show you how he fulfilled the covenant. And I'm going to have to land this for today. And I'm going to have to come back and talk about it some more next week. But how many of you are interested in hearing some more about this? How many of you are, are, are is this expanding this picture for you a little bit? Okay, let me land this plane. So this is Galatians 3, 6 through 9. I love this. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. I love this. The father is preaching the gospel to Abraham by saying all nations will be blessed in you. And then Jesus walks through and makes the covenant himself. He cuts the covenant himself. And he says, I'm going to make a way for everyone to be restored to my Father, not because of their own righteousness, but because of my life. Now, this, this now addresses the other side. All of us that are like, well, I'm living a pretty darn tootin' life, you know? I've been doing pretty good. I, in fact, I'm a good guy. Maybe somebody's here today and you say, you know, I, I'm interested in this God stuff. I'm interested in this, you know, kingdom stuff. I'm, a, I'm an open-minded individual. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And I believe there's a God. And I think when he takes a look at my life, he'll, you know, I'll measure up pretty good and I'll be there. Well, that's called legalism. That's called a works theology. You actually believe that you're good enough to work your way into heaven through your good works. And so you feel accomplished and smug in your life being good, in comparison, of course, to really, really evil people, not in comparison to Jesus. You're not comparing yourself to Jesus. I guarantee it, because that immediately creates humility. But you've become smug, and, and you're saying, like, no, I'm living a pretty good life, you know? I mean, I don't really honor him in, like, practical sort of ways, but I do come to church every six weeks. Um, I haven't kicked any puppies. I only occasionally swear at my wife, and I'm mostly honest at work, you know? I mean, it's, it's very rare that I add an extra 15 minutes on my time card. But, you know, I'm pretty sure I probably worked an extra 15 minutes and forgot to do it the other day. You know, so it's probably evening out. I'm a pretty good guy. Well, no, you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are required to not only meet the requirements of the law, but to exceed them. So if you really are, are in this place of justifying your behavior right now and feeling pretty darn confident, pretty good about yourself because of your good works, then you need to say, well, 
I need to humble myself and say, Lord, it's by grace that I'm standing. And in fact, now that I'm taking an honest look, Lord, is there some area of my life that I actually haven't submitted to you right now? It's, it's amazing to me. I've, I, I'll talk with someone who isn't currently tithing, and they'll say, but I'm a really generous person. And I have yet to find anyone who is not tithing who says they're a generous person that actually gives more than 10%. Kind of an interesting self-justification there, isn't it? Oh, but, but, you know, I'm, I live a generous lifestyle. I'm not covenanted with the people of God. I don't want to have a practical outworking of how this works. But, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm generous. And when we sit down, you know, they're 7% less generous than everyone else who's doing the starting point of what God laid out in us covenanting together to build the kingdom and equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so for us that are in that place, then we have to allow the gospel to come and confront us and say, did Jesus, fulfilling all of the righteous requirements of the law, did he do that so that I wouldn't have to be righteous anymore? So that my actions wouldn't have to actually be measurably good? Did, did Jesus die for murderers so that I have freedom to murder? Did he die for sinners so I would have freedom to sin more? And so in that point, we let, let, let the gospel of Jesus Christ come and meet you where you are and say, oh my goodness, Jesus didn't say less. He said more, but because of what he did, I'm capable of doing that. Not to earn his love, but because I've received the love and now I'm responding in obedience to the standard that he set, not the standard that I'm at. Does that make sense? So we have a tendency in our lives. We're going to swing one way or the other. It's another. That's something new I've just created. Or another. And that's probably based on wiring or where we are in the gospel. But the gospel addresses both sides of it. We're either going to go to one side, which is legalism, or we're going to go to the other side, which is relativism. We're going to go to one side, which is moralism, or we're going to go to the other side, which is anything goes. And either way, what we're doing is we're trying to grab a hold of the unconditional side of this covenant and let go of the conditions of this covenant. Well, I want to talk to you, and I'm going to end with this, the conditions of the covenant that God himself carried out. It says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Whose promise? The Father's promise. You see, the law is our tutor. For those of us that would say, I don't need the law because that just, that leads to death. The law is a curse. No, the law is not a curse. In fact, the word never says that the law is a curse. It said the law brings a curse. Why does the law bring a curse? Because it points out the conditions of the covenant. And all of us have fallen short of the conditions of the covenant. And so we're under a curse. Not because the law is evil, but because sin and death in us is evil. Did you catch that? And many of us as believers, we've come in and we actually believe that the law is wicked. Oh, you're still resting one day a week? Hmm, well, I've evolved a little more in my religion. No, you're just silly. 
you're going to die young. You have to rest one day a week. Why? Because God loves you and it's a condition that he's put in there for you to be healthy. Oh, you don't fantasize about other people? <laughs> That's just a way to spice up my life. My marriage has been a little cold lately. Well, God is saying you're committing adultery. Oh, no, Jesus died for that. Exactly. That's the point. It was so bad. He had to die to set the standard back. Return to the standard. He died so he could restore you to the standard, not bring the standard down to where you're currently sinning. Let the gospel confront that in you right now. Oh, Jesus died. I'm not worried about it. No, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus died so I could just go, oh, I had a bad day, so I killed a few of our kids. His blood was really expensive. No, I have forfeited my life. On this earth, I forfeited my life. Now, he may let me into heaven because of, in fact, he will let me into heaven if I repent because of how absolutely pure and perfect his death was because he did fully fulfill that covenant. But I sure, as before Christ, do not deserve to be allowed to kill people because of what he did. No, no, that is wrong and it is wicked. And if I do not repent, then I will die separate of him. But we do this with little things. We're like, well, dude, that's death. Come on. Come on. But Jesus comes in and he says this. If you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. What? That's right. You're only this far from killing. What did Cain do? He was mad because Abel had a better sacrifice than him. God comes to him and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Why are you angry? Do the right thing. Sin's crouching at your door, but you must master it. And Cain says, where's a rock? And he goes and kills his brother. Do you think that you're different? Do you think your sin is, is more innocuous than what was in Cain's heart? He was just mad at his brother. And he let that turn into what it would become. It was enough to kill him. Here's what I'm trying to say. Your sin is enough to kill Christ. So in the place where we're rationalizing a life that doesn't measure up to what's prescribed in the law of God, which is fulfilled only in Christ, then you need to allow the gospel to confront your lifestyle. And you need to say, why do I live a lifestyle that is so far below the covenant that God laid out for what it is to love? Love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You get to go back and reread the law and go, wow. I get it. You weren't saying that you wanted everyone to die. You were saying everyone's going to die because no one is fully doing all of this. We have no way to get there. So here's how he got us there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, it's Jesus that was torn to pieces because we didn't keep the covenant. And it was Jesus that poured out his blood because we didn't keep the covenant. But because he kept the covenant, 
and fulfilled everything required by a righteous and holy God, it does two things. It causes us to be so grateful that this righteous and holy God, knowing that we couldn't attain to that standard, that we'd all fallen short, he did it for us. And when we see the love of what he's done, that he himself is saying, I'm not going to hold you accountable for what you deserve. I'm going to become the curse for you. You see, the law wasn't the curse. The law was the conditions that released the curse, and we were all under it. And Jesus said, there's only one way that I can still maintain being holy and righteous and still forgive you. It's quite a quandary, isn't it? How does he not lower the standard and at the same time still allow us to live when we're all guilty? And he says, I'll do this. I will give my life to fulfill that covenant so that you are now restored to the standard. I did not lower the standard. So what that does is that gives us an incredible amount of gratefulness and thankfulness for what we stand. It begins to cause us to meditate on the fullness of how truly forgiven we are. And out of that gratefulness, we say, oh my God, how can I even question my standing with you right now? Your own blood was poured out. You yourself were torn to pieces. When you take communion and you break the bread, that's his body. You're remembering this is broken and he's walking between it. This blood that I'm drinking, this cup, this is the blood that was poured out that says you are okay with God. Not because of your lack of sin, because you know what? You have sinned. But I'm not giving you what you deserve. You're not receiving. Break the bread. That's not you right now. So when you come to him, you come to him with full confidence knowing that you will actually be completely and fully forgiven. No condemnation. Absolutely, you can have zero fear because of what he fulfilled. And so it makes us immensely grateful and immensely confident. But on the other hand, so that protects us. That protects us from being afraid that we're, that we won't, that we're not going to make it. So we could go, no, I'm going to make it because of you. But on the other hand, if we're given to license to say, well, because that's been done, I can do whatever I want. I can live whatever life I want. Well, no. In fact, it doesn't say that. He says, I am holy and you must be holy as I am holy. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so, no, you don't get to define reality. You don't get to decide who gets to marry who. You don't get to decide that the rules of what God has set up of how reality works, you don't get to choose those. How do you know? Because those that tried to do it caused Jesus Christ to be torn into pieces. So he has not lowered the standard for you. He hasn't said, because I died, now you can sin. I died for sin, so now I don't care about it anymore. I died for Joshua, who murdered these children so that he could just murder as many children as he wants. No, he died for me because he wants us to be restored back to him so that we can fulfill the law of love, not do away with it. Fulfill it. I'd like the prayer servant team to come forward. And I want us to just stand together. I want to pray together now. And, and I really, I just want us to meditate on this because I believe that everybody in this room today is somewhere between that spectrum of legalism or license, moralism or relativism. 
and we're responding to God in some ways and we're saying, I don't need to do certain things because they're not important to God anymore. And to you, you need to hear, no, they were so important that Jesus died in your place. If you were to continue to do those things without Christ, you would die and you would deserve it. But because he's done it, you're completely forgiven and you don't have to have any fear. So which is it? And the answer is both. You are completely forgiven and completely responsible to live a holy life. And if you sin, there is forgiveness for your sin. And so you repent and he restores you into the standard. And then you live from that place. But the standard is not lowered now. Do you, or, do you hear me? And so we're at various places. Some of us are on the one side. And we're just trying to prove to God that we're good enough. And we're trying to earn our way in. And he's saying you can never do that except what Jesus has done. And on the other side, there are those that are saying, Jesus has done it and I can do whatever I want because God's a God of love and I love sin. And you need to realize he's a holy and a righteous God and you need to repent and allow him to restore your life to the standard. And every time you repent, he will forgive you because of how much it cost has been paid. So I want us to just close our eyes if we would and I have gone really late and I, I do apologize for that. And I'm going to pray over us, and I, I want you to hear this prayer, make it your own in your own heart if it is true, but I'm just going to ask God to search us. So Father, I want you to search us today, and I want you to show us, Lord, where we are out of step with your gospel and your covenant, where we have misunderstood what it is to be forgiven of sin and what it is to be born again. And Lord, whether we're justifying ourselves today on our good actions and ignoring some of the things that you've clearly laid out for us to do, or whether we're on the other side where we feel so condemned because we, we're working really hard to earn our way, in either place, Lord, we need to adjust back to receiving the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, repenting of the particular thing that we're in, Lord and allowing you to address where our heart needs to come to rest either in your grace or to allow you to search us and allow your perfect judgment to come in and, and judge the motive of our heart right here and show us, Lord, do we need to repent? And if it is repentance, we have the full promise of forgiveness. We can then glory and rest in that. So search us this day. Search us this week. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys have a great week. And if you need prayer for encouragement, healing, or you'd like to hear more about Christ, you're here and this is new, please come up. The, the prayer servant team is ready to help you with any of those things.